You're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, conversation, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. Today, we are discussing episode eight of season five, Marco Polo, an episode where through the metaphor of a barbecue grill, the heat gets simultaneously turned up on New York and between Tony and Carmela, but with very different long-term implications. In this show, as in with life pretty much, nothing good lasts that long. There's always a counterbalance. Today, I'm joined via Zoom by my friend Dan Doherty. Dan is the brilliant creative mind behind my two favorite pieces of art to come out of this Sopranos Pada Bing project. Dan, it's great to see you. How are you, man? I'm doing good. I'm staying safe. How are you doing, Vic? Likewise. I'm excited to be able to travel on this journey with you. Glad you're doing well and staying safe. And for listeners, you're coming at us from Chicago, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, the, the sausages in that uh, episode looked uh, looked pretty good to me, right? But <laughs> Let's jump into the episode and do this. Sound good? Sounds great. This episode was written by Michael Imperioli, directed by John Patterson, and originally aired on April 25th, 2004. We're almost lined up in the stars here. HBO synopsis, friends and family gathered together at the Sopranos for a not-so-surprise 75th birthday party for Carmelo's father, Hugh, fucking junior. Meanwhile, Johnny Sack shows off his new wheels. Philly Atardo, I also have a picture of Johnny Sack's, that scene, I might switch it up halfway through our <laughs> thing here. Um, Johnny Sack shows off his new wheels, Phil Leotardo pulls into Pussy's old place for some auto repairs. Just reading that back right now, that actually sounds kind of loaded with innuendo. <laughs> and Tony B considers accepting a familiar job on the side. Dan, we open to the sounds of a radio voice saying New York's only classic rock station, Q104.3. This station, of course has been on Tony's alarm clock a few times, only this time we're not with Tony. The background song, I listened to it on the way in today, Classical Gas by Mason Williams, a beautiful instrumental piece that followed Billy Joel's rule that if you're gonna have a hit, you gotta cut it down to 305. This one clocked in at a very surgical 304. And also won three Grammys. Dan, I bet the Pearl Jam cover (laughs) would be off the charts. The song has been covered or reworked dozens of times. Sadly, never by Eddie Vedder and the gang. No, no. They've just been busy making that great new album. You've been enjoying it, I've been seeing. Oh, I love it. I can't get enough of it. And I know you're a fellow Pearl Jam fan, so that's uh, it was good to, to, to be able to say that Like this album is right back where I wanted them to be. You're a big runner. It's sustaining you on your runs. It's that good? It So it has a bunch of tracks on it that are that perfect pace. I look for tracks, actually, that have like rhythm of my 
my stride running cadence. Yeah, I, exactly. There you go. And, um, and it's got like five or six tracks on there that I put into my, my, my playlist for my runs. It's just really good. These guys seem like they're, they're like, I don't know, like young men again or something, something about it, but it has some slower stuff too. So all in all, it's like a solid Pearl Jam album. I've been digging it. And I also recall you run to podcasts as well, which is a magical feat because I can't do that. I need like, I need music. I need beats to keep going. Otherwise I completely peter out, but you've managed to find your running Zen. Uh, you're one of the few <laughs> special ones, lucky ones. I have listened to Potter Bing on runs before. If it's something that gets my, my brain going, it's, that's all I need. Okay. Well, that's actually a compliment. And I appreciate you saying that if the podcast is able to keep you running, then something right is happening. So that's good to hear. I could never, by the way, I've never listened to any of these episodes that I've put out, but I could never run to a podcast. I've tried, uh, the closest thing that I would say that could keep my interest level is like Colin Cowherd talking sports in the morning, like his morning, he does like a 10 minute opening rant. And even that I need, if there's no music, there's no beat, I can't do it. So what is your, uh, go ahead and brag for the universe here. What is your mile? Uh, if I was just doing one mile, uh, I mean, I'm almost 40 now. So like, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not a spring chicken anymore, but, um, if I'm just doing one mile for speed, I could probably do like a 645, but my average pace is around like eight. I imagine it's super helpful, especially right now to be able to run. It's a great release. Oh God. Yeah. It's the only thing I got right now. My gym has obviously been closed. Um, we're cooped up in the house with the kids and I need that, that little stress break in my day. And we there's luckily there's a place near me that there's nobody there. There's like streets that nobody's walking down. And I'm like, that's my jam now. That's where I'm going to go. I saw some uh, pictures or videos of you with certain board games, which I'm going to ask you about in a little while. Hold <laughs> on to that. Little Carmine, Angelo, and a guy named Jerry are t- the Sopranos, right? They just introduce new people. Yeah. These are people that you're going to know now. This is exactly classic David Chase. A guy named Jerry are taking in the views from Carmine's new spread on Long Island, right on the water. Carmine says it reminded him both of Miami and Termina, which is a place on the east coast of Sicily. Carmine's outfit, Dan, teal polo, mm-hmm. khaki shorts, Thought a Don didn't wear shorts. Nope. <laughs> Held together by a cowboy belt. Dan, if there ever was a comic book character in The Sopranos, it's gotta be him. He's gotta at least be in your top three. He is such a character, man. He is one of the funniest characters on the show to me. Like he he, he gets all of the malaprops, he gets all of the just complete uh not getting it moments, like even in this moment right now, I wanted to ask you, do you think Carmine immediately realizes that this was an attack? Because he's the way he says it, it almost sounds like he just goes, something's wrong with my boat, not my boat is has been clearly um, attacked by, by his rivals. Because he says something, I just had it serviced or something. It was fine. And I'm like, does he even realize what's happening right now? Because the other guy's like, Carmine, you should call the Coast Guard. <laughs> I love that about him. It cracks me up. It's a great point, actually. Part of me wants to think it's because his wife and kid are there and he's trying to do what Tony would do, which is sort of diffuse the situation and write it off as some like regularness of life event because we don't know at this point that Johnny Sack was actually behind it. I don't think we ever officially get confirmation, this episode at least, that Johnny's guys were behind it. 
Did I miss that? Or is that right? I don't know. Well, I know that later on, uh, and I don't want to get too far ahead, but I know that later on when Rusty and Angela were t- talking to Tony B, they say this isn't about the boat thing. Yes. Right. Okay. So I, I think eventually they figured this was retaliation and, or some sort of, you know, back and forth with, with them. But I think even if I don't get the answer, which the show is so good at not giving you an answer about things, I just love the thought that, that it's possible that Carmine is dumb enough to not realize this immediately as what it is. <laughs> That's really always cracks me up. hundred percent. And the fact that we don't get answers about these things is an opportunity for us to talk about these things. So yeah. it's win-win. Yeah. By the way, we later see Tony wearing shorts again, too. So the ghost of Carmine Lupertazzi looms large this episode. Yeah, it's like they own that, that shorts thing. Because I know that they got called out on that. And then they were like, well, Tony wears shorts. They did get called out for the short scene. This was a big fuck you to the people that called them out. Uh, Don does wear shorts in our fucking world. That's right. That's what Chase is saying. A hundred percent. You got to love it. Criticize my show. Criticize my fucking show. (laughs) Angelo says, you can smell the salt. Cute little piece of dialogue. You mean the painting or the view? Uh, We see then a mural of what looks like where Carmine had his honeymoon. It's called, and I love that you sent me an email this morning. It's called Trumpe La Oil, little Carmine says. Fool the eye. Done by an artist in West Hempstead. Dan, he got some of that right, at least. He meant to say, Trump Loyer. I practiced that on my son this morning. It's an art technique, and maybe you can speak to this, that creates optical illusions, right? Correct. Dali, who this pod has spent some time with, is considered a master of the technique. I couldn't find a needle thread, if you will, to Caravaggio. But what you sent me this morning actually convinced me that Caravaggio had a little bit of tinge of trompe loyer in him as well. Yeah, I, I actually started re- researching this this whole um, this whole subject. And I had a, I have a hard time saying it too, even though, I mean, I went to art school. I know that it's not trompe l'oil, like you said, but it's... They, they <laughs> but that's to, perfect little Carmine. Oh, it's it's great that they had him say that. And I um, and I know how much fun they have with having him just say anything like that. But like, it, it's if you have a hard time saying it, you can, you're can you supposed to be able to break it down with trompe and then you have to keep saying it with the inflection over and over until you get it where it gets to go. But uh, yeah, so it is a fool the eye technique. and um, actually a pretty big example that's not exactly what this one is but um people say like the mona lisa is actually like that because no matter where you go in the painting she's following you with her eyes so there's this weird um trick that you can pull there but most of the time it's just the the, um the idea of of depth of field of of it feeling like you're actually there they're using like foreshortening and they're using um um like forced perspective to make you think that you might actually be seeing something that's not actually happening. Is it fair to say in your expertise then that that painting that Carmine was referring to did very little to actually fool the eye? It was, it was actually the opposite. It was two dimensional while trying to be three dimensional, which actually makes it worse, right? Yeah. It's, it's a real rudimentary version of this at best. Like, I mean, he's, 
he probably someone told him this and he was like, I'm going to remember that for later <laughs> and then just butchered it completely with everybody. But um, if I can say something that, you know, I, what I love about your show, man, you, you get people to dig deeper on this. I'm wondering if fool the eye is actually like a theme throughout this episode or be people like people being deceived or deceiving. And I want to, if I say more, well, um, I'll tell you what, you know what I'd like to do? Can I touch upon them as they happen? Cause I yes. feel like they happen several times. Tony definitely fools a lot of people in this one. Even Carmela's mother has, has a something in, in store for Carmela that she slowly catches on to um, mm. about the party. Um, and then there's, I mean, uh, yeah, I'll, I'm going to save it, but I'm going to point it out every time I see it. Cut to Carmine walking Jerry over to a washer and dryer combo. Top of the line. <laughs> Same as mine. Carmine. Did we think you'd have anything less, man? It's okay. <laughs> the music has, by the way, has tremendous effect here. It's a perfect instrumental beat track for Carmine to lay down his raps, which he does to perfection. He explains that it's a token for something called Freeport. Again, Dan, we, the viewer, are clearly on a need-to-know basis here. We've never heard of a Freeport thing, but I think Jerry runs a crew or is involved with a crew in the Freeport section of Long Island. That might be what that's referring to. Jerry, by the way, is played by Gary Pastor, who, among many other things, is Vincent Pastor's cousin. It's indicated that now that Carmine is up in the tri-state, he and this guy, Jerry, are going to form a duet or something. Simon and Garfunkel over here. <laughs> Dan, what's your go-to Simon and Garfunkel song? Oh, man. So I, I thought about this because um, I know you, you kind of gave me a little heads up on that. Thank you for that because I would have said <clears throat> me and Julio down by the schoolyard until I remember that. that's just a, a Paul Simon song, though, I think. So I'm going to go with Cecilia. That's, that's always been one of my favorites. Cecilia, actually, funnily enough, was my freshman year dorm. It was a suite, and we shared it with, the wing was with 14 other guys. And that was our uh, end-of-the-year celebratory song. We picked Cecilia to celebrate graduation. So neither, cool. neither here nor there. But enter little Carmine's son. The boat is sinking. A nice welcome to the neighborhood present from It Remains to be Revealed, but we're assuming it's Johnny Sack and his guys. Dan, the son's wearing a baseball jersey with Borlotti's Deli emblazoned on the front. Doesn't appear to exist anymore if it ever did. I looked and I thought it was Boriati's Deli because you can't really see it in the frame. I looked up Boriati's and I looked up Borlotti's, neither of which existed. The name of the boat... My Funny Valentine uh, is also the name of a hugely popular jazz standard that is that was featured in The Talented Mr. Ripley, which I mentioned because I just watched again as part of my pandemic diet. Um, it holds up. It's a great movie. That's a fantastic movie. That's a great Matt Damon performance. The ending always irritated me, though. Still did. Cut to AJ playing the drums. Hugh, uh, Hugh's my guy this episode. Uh, this is Hugh's episode. Love Hugh, which you know as a listener. Hugh's climbing the roof, doing more work around the house. A nice carryover from a couple episodes back, right? He falls 
right by AJ's window. Got a nice freeze frame of it. It's definitely not Hugh who's falling. <laughs> no, it's hilarious though. It's a, it's a, such a quick blink and you miss it, but <laughs> so great. He appears to have landed in the bushes. Thank God for television tropes, right? Dan, anything like that or equivalent ever happened to you? Uh, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> um, I have fallen off a roof before, but I landed in a garbage can. <laughs> uh, I was up on my folks' roof. I used to go up there to read, actually, because they had a nice uh, way to get up, but not a great way to get down. So I used to keep a ladder uh, right along the side of my house to, so I could get back down. Well, a strong wind took that ladder, and I didn't even notice that when I went to uh, climb down, and I went straight into a garbage can and busted my leg up. It was, it was the last time I went up on that roof. <laughs> I got something for you here. There we go. <laughs> That's, that was that was me moments before. <laughs> Look at him go. I want to hang out with Hugh today because I love I love me some Hugh. Cut to a hospital. Waiting room. Hugh's wife says, let me die first. Dan, some more morbid shit for you. Agree or disagree with that statement? Totally agree. Jeez, man. I don't want to outlive my wife. That'd me be too. terrible. Yeah, be the worst. I told my wife the same thing as I wrote this down. Um, This accident, we learn, is right before his 75th birthday. And for those of us who might have forgotten, we're immediately reminded this is the Hugh birthday episode. Keyword, Dan, Beretta. (laughs) The best pieces. They never export. They never export. Oh, man. What, <laughs> no. a buzz, what a buzz kill. What a jerk. Oh, let's get to that guy. We'll get to him. We'll, we'll devote. Yeah, well, sorry. I got excited about We'll devote ample time. No, hey, you know me too well. I get, I get overly excited about stuff. And as I'm going through this list here, I'll start to get, you'll start to see me move in my seat a little bit. You're going to know something's coming. <laughs> um, but I dialed back to NBA references this one because uh, one of my close friends listened to this and he got so mad at me because uh, he doesn't know anything about basketball. And last episode, I don't know if you listened or not, but I had Justin on, who's an old friend of the pod. And we did like, I think 23 or 24 of them. And I had to put the Mario dings in. And, yeah. and one of my, I, I promised my friend that just for him, even though what he thinks about this podcast don't mean Ugats to me. Okay. <laughs> I told him just because I love him that I will dial it back a little, not a lot, a little. I would, can I say really quick? I was super nervous about the, the that part of that's the only thing that I was nervous about because I don't know jack shit beyond the the nineties era Bulls. That was that was my team, and I was a teenager then. And when that ended, it was like, what else am I going to accomplish here in Chicago if I don't have Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen? I just stopped watching. So like, you're my only lifeline to NBA right now, Vic. You're all I got. <laughs> You mentioned the 90s Bulls. It's kind of like the Sopranos. What are you going to watch basketball-wise after Michael Jordan? It really spoils you. And so there's fair argument to be made. But I will mention him. That documentary that's coming out this weekend is going to be yeah. one of the most, one of the more essential pieces of content to come out of 2020, if not this decade. Yeah, that's the first, I'm, I'm actually really looking forward to that. And I have, again, I, I, I'm checked out of basketball. So that says something. Yeah. So... The doctor comes over. It's just some bruising we learn. An interesting thing happens, Dan, in the form of cuts. Before they learn about Hugh's status, 
the wailing and anguished patients seem to get a more empathetic or gentle glance or body language combination from Carmela. This is a super subtle observation here. But as soon as they hear the news and sit down to wait it out, the camera cuts to a boy screaming in pain. And then to Carmela, and she jumps right into conversation with her mother. With her mother. With her mother. <laughs> That's a total Freudian her mother slip. Was a mother. <laughs> it's subtle, but it's there. Carmela doesn't really give a shit is sort of like what what I got from that. Uh, there's some argument out there that this is one way more that she's getting pushed back towards Tony because Tony's not a crybaby, And this is all about sort of like a path back to Tony. That could also be a nugget that we get or carrot that we get in this scene. But Carm's mother, Mary has had enough. She screams. I'll play the sound bite. Why don't they take care of this man? <laughs> I saw that and tell me what you think. I saw that as a referendum on our healthcare and triage system. I have a lot of thoughts actually about this scene. I'm glad you said this. Um, so there's there's uh, the other theme that I have for this whole this whole episode is I can put it as simply as possible as the haves and the have-nots. And I feel like they open on this scene with that that wailing sound of of what I actually, by my first uh, viewing, I remember the first time I saw this episode, I thought it was Hugh wailing because we just saw him in the bush. We just saw a, what could have been a you know, really devastating accident for him. And you hear this wailing and you're like, oh God, is that Hugh? And it's, it's some guy in the waiting room. It's not him. And they keep cutting back, just like you said. And to me, they, I, the way that they presented those, the, that there's like a couple, there's a couple of people in there. They seem like they don't have as much as Carmela and Mary and Hugh do. Like I almost feel like, like, like the Soprano D'Angelo's family got some sort of like special treatment in that place. And when Mary asks that, I'm almost like, do you think that maybe the reason why you got what you got is because you have more than these people, and they like they wanted to help this person first? It, it's a theme that I'm going to come back to because I want to talk about it with like Tony B's kids and a bunch of other things. But it's like they made that guy, like you said, there's some sort of he's some sort of metaphor for something or he's he, he's speaking to something larger than I think just a guy wailing in, in an ER. Absolutely. Beautifully said. Like the doctor comes out to physically talk to Carmela and Mary uh, I doubt there are patients that are getting that same level of, let's call it white glove or concierge treatment. Yeah, they seem like they got special treatment. And I felt like um, when she says that, it's, it's, sort of, it's sort of like, do you, do you not realize why? The, you, know, you should know the, own, the answer to your own question. It's also interesting that you bring that up because Carmela and Mary are at loggerheads this episode. But earlier in the show, in the series, remember when Carmela and her are arguing in the kitchen and Mary's complaining about this lifestyle that they have. Carmela says something to her to the effect of, you guys get a free pass. I earn it but you guys mm -hmm. get a free pass. This is more of that. Mary's sort of shitting on Tony this episode, but she gets this white glove treatment because of who Carmela is and who she's married to and what their PPO policy looks like. Exactly. I think the, the, all the subtle looks that Carmela, that Edie Falco gives throughout the whole episode, I think that's a 
great callback to like that moment because I know that in in the back of her head when she's looking at her throughout the course of the episode in random spots there's just sort of this I wouldn't say maybe contempt a little bit but like don't you realize that you wouldn't have a lot of what you have were it not for Tony whether or not he's proper Italian or educated in the same way that Dr. Fagoli is like he gave you a lot and that's it's actually making Carmela, um, after this whole season, kind of almost like sympathetic with Tony. It was like the, this is the first episode, I think, in a bit where she has some sympathy or empathy for him. Beautifully said, man. Carm and her mother are going back and forth on whether or not to invite Tony to the party. Carm seems to think he has to be there. It won't be the same, she says. Mary, on the other hand, doesn't want him there. But her body language is suggesting an agenda, right? Which we'll come to later learn is embarrassment perhaps, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. She's ashamed of him, yeah. Cut from one Italian siren, Edie Falco, Dan, <laughs> and those cut arms to a Maserati. Johnny Sack is showing, yes, I just compared Edie Falco to a Maserati. <laughs> Johnny Sack is showing it off to Tony. It was always a dream of his to own a fine Italian sports car. Whose dream isn't it? Guinea Gray, Tony says. It was a 2002 Maserati Coupe, by the way, and the color, official color, was not Guinea Gray in the brochure. It's Touring Gray. 390 horses, Johnny Sachs says. He can have all 390, Dan. I think Tony just wants that one back. I oh my. Mm, R.I.P. Johnny Sack brings up Phil. He won't let that Casbah car chase go. Phil treats nickels, we learn, like manhole covers. Great New York expression. One of my favorite ones. Best ones, right? Throw nickels like manhole covers, which means you don't because manhole covers are fucking heavy. Mm -hmm. Johnny Sack has to side with Phil, he explains. Optics. How else is he to compete with fucking little Carmine? who's giving away washing machines to curry favor. And now, Dan, I thought about a way to like insert like a really articulate and funny Indian food joke here, but I failed miserably and I got nothing. I left it there in case you had something though. I mean, they're all terrible. Like you're going to need a washing machine after that Indian food. Thank you. Hey, that's better than what I had. So thank you. That's the best I got. And then I thought about a Steph Curry. You know who Steph Curry is, obviously. You know who Steph Curry is, yeah. If nothing else, you know Steph Curry because of Pot of Bing, it's fair to say. Only because of you, yeah. But I I already have him later in the pod. So I can't say I couldn't drop that here. So thank you for pulling me out of my own quicksand. Phil, we learn, let his insurance lapse for a better rate. Again, pension those pennies. In this case, though, penny-wise, pound foolish, right? Real talk, I hope nobody let their insurance lapse right now in this world that we live in. It'd be a bad time to do what Phil did. Absolutely. Johnny Sack asks Tony to take care of it on account that he ruled in favor of him on the racetrack and whatnot. Tony says it goes through his shop in that case to control expenses. Sidebar, the yard's getting work done. Remember Salvitro 
Absolutely. This, this is a huge point. I re- say, Go ahead. I have something to say, but you go ahead. He does that place for free. Remember, that was part of the deal. They take a ride leaving Sal and all those dreams he had growing up, Dan, in the motherfucking dust. Mm-hmm. Cue Come Go With Me by the Dell Vikings. By the way, that song is still pulling down 350,000 listens a month. No kidding. Jeez. <laughs> what was your observation on Salvitro? So this is another, to me, this is another example of the haves and the have-nots. This is, the, and it, the, the big theme throughout this episode is Tony B coveting or wanting to take that lifestyle that he's been missing for a long time. And they keep showing the extremes in this, this episode of like poverty and wealth. And so you've got, Johnny Sag with a Maserati talking to Tony and they're talking about, you know, treating nickels like manhole covers, even though they're wealthy as all get out. And then meanwhile, you got Sal Vitro across the road in his busted up landscaping gear and just sort of like, like pathetically waving over at them. And it, and it even reminded me of a call back to uh, AJ's um, tutor back like way a couple episodes ago who had to drive off in his beater while AJ got like a brand new fancy car. So it's like, it's this haves and haves not thing that, that I think like will run through this whole episode and force Tony B into the situation that he gets to. Tony can barely get in, which was code, which is basically my point is that was code for a Ginny sack joke is coming. Uh, Tony's face is perfect. It lingers just long enough to fully enjoy the moment with him and flash back to, of course, seasons past. And then, of course, we get the Johnny Sack swerve. Hold on just one minute. Give it to me. Yeah, look at that, baby. Okay, we get the Johnny Sack swerve on a takeoff. Kanye West over here. That will land for very few people, but I said it. That was also a Chicago nod for you, my friend. If I can add, like, if you did a drinking game to this episode of every time Tony smirks with glee at someone else's expense, you would be drunk. You. <laughs> there's 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 several smirks and that Ginny Sack smirk is one of my favorite ones. It's so great. Great observation. Cut to Angie's Body Shop. Cleveland Body Shop, I think is the official name of it. Tony drives right in as opposed to parking in a parking space. He's sending a message. I sunk your husband and I'll sink your body shop if I want to. Dan, what are we, playing Battleship now? (laughs) A5 over here. Speaking of games, I saw you desperately trying to play some board games with your kids. Have you been able to find a balance? And can you give me some tips? Uh, Yeah, it's... It is a struggle right now, I'm not going to lie. Because my daughter is four, and she's the one that wants to play. My son is two, he doesn't care. So my daughter wants to play all day and I still got to work. So I, we, we picked two or three games. Um, and I, I play by the rules, but I really hope she wins every time. Like I'm, I'm rooting for her to win. 
because if she doesn't win, it's a nightmare. So if, if, if you're having a hard time with those kids, just let them win the game and then get away. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it, we even cooped up puzzles. We played Sorry. We even played the Barbie game. It is, uh, it is rough. I have a game recommendation, actually. My wife found it. Your daughter's the older one. She might be a tad young, but like my older one picked it up a while ago, so it could work. It's called Quirkle, Q-W-I-R-K-L-E, I I think. And as an adult, you'll love it because it's it's actually a fun game and it kind of tests your sort of ability to like use your brain. Hmm. Uh, But we've been, that's been a runaway favorite for us. We play it every night now and I'm thankful because we got out of the sorry phase. We got out of the shoots and ladders phase, which I was going crazy playing and my son like cheats. So it's like, it's like, like, no, you have to play. Like if the turn doesn't go the way he wants the turn to go, he wants to take his turn again. Kind of like Carmine, I'll take a mulligan. Uh, It's like, no, that's not... That's not how board games work, man. But uh, try Quirkle out and let me know if you oh, have any success with it. Thank that. you. I need all the help I can get. So I, I'm, I wrote that down and I underlined it. He explains the situation to Angie in a there's nothing to fucking explain kind of way. Keep costs in line and be a big help to me. Or, Dan, to extend the metaphor, I will sink your battleship. <laughs> Her face... Looking up at him, again, optics is a theme that I circled for this episode. The power dynamic is on full display. And this episode presents an interesting contrast of this, first with Angie and then with Carmela, which is to say that Tony gets his way and he does it by using indifference and the lapse of time to bend things to his will. All the permutations, Dan and to me, this is another, and I totally agree with that. I think that that's a, I mean, the way he walks in here with this agenda and the way he uses people, I mean, it's all part of what Tony does, but like on theme with the whole fool the eye, I mean, I don't think Angie fully realizes what she's about to get herself into, even though she knows Tony, she knows that, you know, he's not a stand up guy, even though she might be saying thank you for basically bailing out the, the shop, and, but also using it for other things. But Tony's pawning this off on her. Like he's basically going to use her for the rest of the episode to not have to deal with the headache of Phil Leotardo. And as she slowly realizes she's being fooled, I mean, she's just getting more and more frustrated and he's smirking every single time. To your point that you just made, talk me through this. She's thankful uh, and mentions other businesses he's involved in and his radar immediately flies up. Remember those parabolics from Skip Dan? He backs off and ends the conversation. Was she trying to set him up or was that completely benign? I always wonder that. And it's again, it's one of those great things about the show that lets you kind of figure it out for yourself or have your own conclusions because she did she did give a line that could be perceived as I'm, I'm trying to bait you into saying something that could be incriminating later. And like she's cooperating with somebody. Exactly. But at the same time, that's Tony's reflex. Like Tony, if he even hears a whiff of something that might be incriminating that he has to answer to, he immediately leaves. I mean, he, he it's, it's the, it's the Richie factor. Like the second Richie wants to talk business, he's like, all right, I'll see you later, Richie. And that, and everyone's left to go like, huh? But I think Angie knows, I think Angie's been around enough and has 
somehow reconciled what I'm sure she knows happened, but is, a, is, a, is surviving as, a, as essentially a single woman. And I think when that moment happens, even if she was trying to bait him, I think she realized he's onto it. And, and that's the end of that. But I don't think she did. I think she just, I think that's just Tony. Mm. To your point also later, she says, we don't, we don't talk about that. What happened mm-hmm. to, to pussy? Um, yeah, she's not stupid. There's no question about it in my mind. She's, she's the equivalent of, of Carmela to that household. And she's been around the block long enough to know, um, which is why she's a perfect candidate to be cooperating with the FBI. They never obviously show that storyline. We, we don't spoil on the podcast, but we haven't to this point seen her be approached or sort of cordoned off by the FBI. But this plants the seed, and that, again, makes for great storytelling, right? Absolutely. T's got a new driver, Tony Siragusa. Uh, we saw him uh, an episode or two ago wheeling Christopher off to the fields to potentially meet his maker. He's a guest star. Season five has been bringing them on in brute force, right? Because the show's at its all-time high. It is actually the 98 Jordan Bulls, if you will, of television at this point. I understand and any. <laughs> And you understand that? And anybody and everybody that wants on the show that has some celebrity or some star gets on. And Tony Siragusa was an example of that as well. Defeated, Angie moseys back to her own version of regularness of life. Beautiful little shot there. And we cut to Livia's house. Tony answers the door. It's early. It's Carmela. He plays nice host for a sec. Dan, guy's got manners after all. Can I get you anything? She's there to disinvite him to the party. A lot of balls. But also, couldn't she have just done this with a phone call? It's funny. I mean, I, I, I worried about Tony in this moment. When I first saw this episode, I remember. I mean, this is one of those I really remember, like, where I was and, and what I was doing when I saw it. And I was worried for Tony because I was worried she came unannounced, basically. And he was, it was late in the day. What if he had one of his ladies over and Carmela showed up? I was so freaked out about that, that that was going to be the, the shoe that dropped in the moment. Ah. And I was thankful that it wasn't. But like, yeah, her coming over, um, she could have, it could have been a phone call. I, I wonder why she had to. Um, it's... I think she's a. I think she's a little conflicted about not having Tony there. I think with Mary putting the screws on her, um, I think she slowly it slowly dawns on her over the episode. But I think even early on, I think she feels something's not quite right about this. I love how you quoted this episode to make your point. Yeah, uh, <laughs> quoted you. I also an observation that I had while you were talking about this is that we don't really ever see Valentina in this house. We don't really see any of his girls in this house. Part of that probably is because it's a dump, but also something screams respect for his mother a little bit, kind of. And maybe to close the book on this scene, Carmela's also a little old school. It's kind of a respectful thing to do. Sure. Um, he is, it is his house after all. But I always felt like if she didn't want the confrontation that she inevitably got, she could have just done it over the phone. The camera zooms in on both of them to convey this nervous tension. I thought that was a great touch, a great choice by John Patterson. Mm-hmm. Tony agrees, uh, says he knew all along he would never go, which is, again, it goes back to your theme of this Trump lawyer, right? <laughs> It's, it's, it's Trumpy oil. 
We get this, this is a little thing too that I caught this time. Again, after the 77,000th time you watch it, right? You start to think about this stuff still, which is a testament to its greatness. The sound design, Dan. We hear ducks or geese or whatever the fuck outside as this is going down, almost as if they're getting farther away, more out of reach, if you will, like his family. This is sort of the indication that you're not invited to your father-in-law's birthday party. It's just sort of like the family's getting farther and farther apart. Sort of a beautiful touch. If that was coincidental or not, I highly doubt. But if that's what they were thinking, that's a thing of beauty right there. To your theme, I love that theme. And because it really, there was two things I want to mention about this this, uh, scene that have to do with like family and what he's sort of losing. One of them to me is the fact that the place looks a lot like the same kind of dump that Meadow had in her, her bedroom after Jackie Jr. died. And like the, the, all of the, um, the parallels or the, the, the ways that they try to bring Meadow and Tony together in this episode, they're really subtle, but they're all there. And I think it's partly to show that, you know, yeah, that Tony is missing his, his normal family life but also to make Tony be kind of jealous and coveting again, the haves and haves nots of this, of this whole thing. And the other thing is that she brings the star ledger. Am I right? Is it the star ledger she brings in the paper in there and they gave you the headlines and it's Baghdad, the powder keg and budget feud brings threat. And I was like, Oh, I love their headlines in Sopranos. They just always give you something really fun on the front. It's great. I am so proud that you wore your pot of Bing glasses uh, like I knew you would. <laughs> I'm channeling my Vic, man. I'm, I'm, I'm doing my Vic reaches all day. I love it. Tony wants to pitch in, hands her a wad of cash. That's his way to control the situation, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But she'd rather see him use that cash on therapy. Was that a dig or was that genuine? I think it's a bit of both. I think it, I, I mean, I think she does think his therapy is valuable. But I think that the way she said it and when she said it, she knew what he was going to react with. I mean, she know she knows him better than anybody. Like she said, you know, like it, she knew she knew what she was doing when she said that, and he did exactly what she thought he would. So she knew that was coming, huh? He flips. I think so. Any idea what he's talking about right there when he says other people think she should be in therapy? Who thinks she should be in therapy? I don't, I think he's bullshitting her. I mean, he, he bullshitted her like 10 seconds ago when he didn't even know the party was happening. Right. And then he, when he got disinvited to, he's like, oh, well, all along, I thought I wasn't going to go. You know, I decided right then and there after the separation, he, he's just, he's just full of shit in this whole scene. He's, he's wonderfully full of shit. Well, if I may, it plays into your original theme of tricking the eye. He's trying mm-hmm. to deceive her and he deceives her twice in this scene. So if there was a Mario coin counter for your theme, <laughs> This would be plus two for Vic right here. (laughs) Cut to Junior watching Fellini's La Dolce Vita. Actually, he's not watching at all. He nodded off the ghost, Dan, of Aaron Arkaway over here. (laughs) Have you heard the good news? (laughs) Interesting that Junior is watching this movie as part of the story, right, has to do with the protagonist seeking a better life. And Junior's kind of on... This episode and the last episode, Junior's kind of checked out, right? He's come to terms with his mortality. He's come to terms with the fact that he's given his life to this thing. And what is this thing given back to him? Horseshit, to use the horse analogy. Um, Bobby comes in with some Danish and coffee. 
How's that for a better life? He comes in playing WebMD over here. Do this, do that. Then he asks if Junior got an invite to Hughes' 75th. No, but we go way back to when Moses wore short pants. Until The Sopranos, I had never heard that term. Me either. Junior calls Hugh. Surprise notwithstanding. Was this a bad move on Junior's part? Like, were you as mad as Bobby? Oh, I thought it was a total jerk move. But I also wonder, We at this point, we got to wonder about Corrado's mental state. Like, he's... Junior is uh, has already shown like these signs of dementia and um, and paranoia and also I don't you know it, it mixed with that was I don't give a fuck. I mean, what I love about his his call is and I it, I don't know I think something's really funny about Michael Imperioli's writing in general. But like the the operator says something about um, uh, what does she say? She says something about like the call is like thirty five cents or something. And I think he considers it for a second because he's such a tight ass. <laughs> he actually's like, should I spend the 35 cents? And he goes, what the fuck? It's over anyhow. And he makes the call. So I'm like, Junior is just like, uh, he's another question mark for me because I could see it going either way. He is kind of a jerk, but he's also really losing his mind. And um, and again, man, if we're going on this fool the eye thing, they're trying to fool Pew with the surprise party. And the joke's on them. Hugh figures it out because of of Junior's uh, ridiculous call. Interesting that you mention the collect call. I was also wondering, I remember the first time I watched it, I thought to myself, how does he know Hugh's number? Because he starts to dial and you just assume that Hugh's going to answer, but it's revealed that it's an operator. Yeah. Talking about his state of mind and his facility to remember things. Also... He says, what are we, children? Um, there's no age limit on surprises, right? It's okay. Like, I, I like surprises. Do you still like surprises? Yeah, I do too. I mean, I think everyone deserves at least one surprise party in their life. And if, especially if he hasn't gotten one yet, he's, he's not getting any younger. Give him his surprise and don't be a jerk about it. But uh, yeah, I don't think there's an age limit on a surprise party. I, that's, that was weird to me. Hugh's reading the paper, enjoying some tea and toast with jam. Again, that's a visual. I don't know if that was necessarily in the writing per se, but that this guy's day is about to get potentially, like there's a bomb that just got put on his kitchen table um, and he didn't do anything to ask for it, which is sort of like what life hands you sometimes. Bobby's more mad than Hugh, which I thought was a little funny. Guy seems kind of delighted that he found out, right? And he conveys that when he's with Carmela later at dinner. Bobby's so mad. Guy just sat down. It's a lot of energy for a guy like that to move around. He spent all this extra ATP just to get up and out of there, which I thought was funny. He couldn't be in the same room with Junior after he did that, which was a little eccentric on his part. He left pastries behind. That's how upset he was. Yes. Bobby left behind pastries. He was that riddled with anger. (laughs) Who was the Danish really for, Dan? (laughs) Cut to the Bing exterior. On the sign... We see they're promoting a Holyfield Lewis fight. Now, they first fought against each other in 1999. Their first fight resulted in a draw. Their second fight was also in 1999, and Lewis won. So, what the fuck, Bada Bing? It's 2004 over here. Wait, they never had a fight then? <laughs> no! Oh, that's weird. 
<laughs> it's weird. It's a weird thing. I don't know if it was nostalgia night at the Bing or what, but it, <laughs> the, 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 the timeline is completely askew. If you will, maybe there's just two strippers there named Holyfield and Lewis, and they're, they're, they're really popular. That's all that. That's all there is to it. <laughs> Inside, Tony's looking at. Speaking of strippers, Tony's looking at a dossier of girls recruiting for the Bing. I would imagine. Uh, Tony B enters. He's wearing a tracksuit now. Dan, not his usual Kim scrubs. Larry Legend over here. Hope that one didn't go over your head. Tony B. delivers an envelope. Proceeds from the airbag scam. Says it's too easy and that maybe he could be of better service. I thought that was a very subtle way to ask for a promotion. It wasn't too on the nose, if you will. It was no, very deferential. It isn't. And, it's, and there's there's a lot of subtle things happening in this scene. I mean, you know, we know that later on, you know, this is going to have a very uh, explosive ending. And they allude to it sort of right now with this with the music choice. I mean, this, they they start they're playing faces, uh, the Rod Stewart band, um, uh, Bad and Ruin, that song, right? And like, the, it's not an accident that they're playing it now. Tony B is looking for something more, and Tony S isn't providing it fast enough for him. Like he wants again the haves and the have-nots. He wants that thing that that Tony has. Um, and it's just, I love when they use the music for the show. It's just so great to the callbacks and the, and the choices of it. It's it's wonderful. So intentional. Yeah. He wants fast track to your point for time served, right? He asks to get straightened out in this particular scene, which means get made, right? Mm -hmm. That's the term. I'm Charlie hustle. He says, which is a reference to baseball's Pete Rose, Note the lighting on Tony B, similar to the lighting on you right now, Dan. (laughs) He never looked better than right there. The staging for the most benign or innocuous of scenes, the staging is just absurd. Did it. No matter what one says about Pete's Hall of Fame, talking about Pete Rose, no matter what anybody says about his Hall of Fame eligibility, the guy holds enough records to impress even Junior Soprano. Okay, definitely had the makings, Dan. Most career hits, most career times on base, most career winning games played, most career runs by a switch hitter. I could go on and on, but who am I? Bob Costas now. <laughs> I'm loving this. Tony, indirectly, thank you for indulging me. I'm not with faith. you, man. It's, just, it's, it's nice to be like a, a, a involved in it now. Like, I, like to hear it on the radio. Now you know how the sausage is made. And now I'm here behind the scenes. <laughs> and how much trouble I go through. I actually write these, believe it or not, and I share them with my wife. And if my wife gives even the slightest whiff of a chortle, I keep it in. But if she looks, <laughs> if she looks at me like Rusty Milio, I take that shit out. So she's my litmus test. Because what she thinks does me new guts to me. <laughs> Tony indirectly offers money. And this is something that I want to come back to with you as we go through this episode. Tony B shoots it down faster than Steph Curry with the clear path. Tony B asks what to get Hugh. Doesn't want to overlap gifts with the great and venerable Tony Soprano. And then again, to your point, to your theme, Tony lies and obfuscates things and says he went to Carm and thought it was best he sit it out. 
always saving face, especially in front of his other family, right? Mm -hmm. Tony does this all the time. I love, and I love that they show you that he does it. Like they give you the moment where it happened the one way where Carmela presented it to him. And then not too long after that, he's already respun the story for Tony B to make it seem like he's in charge and he's in control and he's making the decisions. It's brilliant. Beautiful word choice, respun. This is one of the gifts of the show. We're in on a lot of things. We and Tony know what's going on. Tony B doesn't in this scene. Mm -hmm. So that's our gift. But also the counterbalance to that is we're not privy to a lot of things. So we get, but we also have to not necessarily give, but we're also in the dark on a lot of stuff. And that's the beauty of it. Cut to Phil and Joey Peeps walking up to Angie's body shop. Phil asks Angie for her brother-in-law. New character. And that's how he's introed. Where's your brother-in-law? Nice intro. The only person that gets really gets a great intro in this, this season in particular is Tony B. Everybody else is just sort of there. We all passed a lot of water since the old days, huh? That's an expression that's used a few episodes back, too. Water under the bridge sort of cousin, if you will. I heard that line, and I thought it was hilarious, because, I mean, if you think about it, who is passing more water than Big Pussy right now? <laughs> it's, it's the guy that they're going to be talking about. And they, I love the choice of words. I have to believe that wasn't an accident. Well, the irony, right, is that the brother doesn't know what actually happened to Big Pussy. So the fact that he's saying it is even more on the nose, to your point, the irony of it. Do you think, I, I wonder, do you think that they do? I don't know. I mean, he doesn't know where he is, but we know that. We know he doesn't, he couldn't possibly know what they, where they put him. Yeah, they, they might know that he, in theory or like language wise, sleeping with the fishes, but they don't know what literally happened to exactly, him. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, exactly. that Omerta is that Omerta is strong on that, I think. To your point, which makes the statement even all the more ironic that it's coming from Pussy's brother. But also, I don't think that Phil Leotardo even knows. Because I think that if New York knew what happened to Pussy, the thing, the pygmy thing in Jersey, would be even more compromised from a respect standpoint. Is that a fair statement? I think so. Well, I think Phil is an instigator. I think he, even if he doesn't know what exactly happened he he knows that it's a it's a sore subject like he, he knows that big pussy being gone being the line of business that he is in means one of what maybe two things that he either went into protection um or he's dead so either way it's definitely a a, a, a like a blight on the family like in and if he brings it up it's just a fuck with him i mean it's like that's what Phil does best. Like Phil loves fighting with people. And I think just that one line is great. Well, without over quoting him in advance, because we haven't seen this yet, he does give an indication of the line right here with showing no empathy and no sympathy. There are no scraps, Dan, in his scrapbook. Nope. Phil and Joey heavily scrutinize the car. Tough customers. The same way Roger Federer scrutinizes a ball mark on the court during a challenge call. Now I think you're fucking with me. <laughs> you're feeling it's hard me right now. <laughs> the paint isn't as brilliant. It's a great choice of word right there. Mm -hmm. And then the other great choice of word, the seat's off kilter. It's a skew. 
They haven't given us a skew yet. Oh, I know. We've we got to wait for that. But it's they're just building on it. This is what yeah. I've said many times on the pod. The writers are just having too much fun at our expense Absolutely. at this point. Call me when it's done right. Um, Dan, does Phil know the car's fine? Is he just trying to hose Tony? Absolutely. I think he's he wants to hose everybody. He wants to, I mean, he'll mess with Angie, not even really knowing you know, much about her. Um, but he knows that this is in Tony's lap to fix. You know, I'm sure that um, if it hasn't been explicitly said by Johnny, it's implied, you know, you, we're going to make it right. Tony's going to make it right for you. And so now his goal is to make making it right a living hell because like they point out in the, I think the first thing, one of the first things, because it, it's the seat, the brilliance of the paint. And then there's something about the back, like a dent or something. And there's no way that was a part of that accident. It's just, they're just, now they're just nitpicking the car as a car and at her expense. And you could just see the tension in her building as she, I think she realizes in this moment what Tony did to her. And it's slowly dawning on her over the episode. But I think even now she's just like, I think I just got played by Tony again. True story. I once upon a time was in the car business. I managed a few dealerships and I, would see customers walk around to check out the work that was done. And I would always say this to the service manager that I was working with. I said it at least three times. I'd say fucking Phil Leotardo over here. <laughs> um, and this is back in the day. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> like, I know, I know those customers, they try to get a factory uh, seat or they try to get a factory upgrade for something that's not supposed to be part of the original work order. And um, so it's very satisfying to me to be able to drop that line. Of course, the service manager, manager didn't have a fucking clue what I was talking about. Like many people still don't have a fucking clue what I'm talking about, but it doesn't stop me, Dan. That's the point. It didn't stop me 10 years ago. It doesn't stop me in 2020. No, you got to keep going, man. Don't stop believing. Cut to dinner at Carmela's. Takeout. When you think dinner at Carmela's, we talked about this a lot. You always think a nice sort of maniacally prepared Italian spread. But again, no Tony, things are a little bit different. We get takeout Chinese. Hugh uh, is eating ribs. And the look on his face as he dives into them is priceless. We just had Chinese takeout yesterday in celebration of this episode. I'm not kidding. I said, I'm working on this episode tomorrow. I want Chinese takeout. I didn't get the ribs, but I dove into it like Hugh dove into this meal here. Carmen Mary try to con him on the birthday plan. He's playing along, but barely, right? And Carm picks up on it. Hugh then says, you can save the cloak and dagger, which is a beautiful Hugh line. Mm -hmm. And then he delivers Junior's line back to the room, but with the vim and vigor that Junior lacked. This guy's quite proud of himself. What do you make of him? Tony recites back Melfi's lines, but here in an episode where we don't get Melfi, we have Hugh reciting back Junior's line. Did you catch that? Absolutely. I mean, that's the, again, that's one of those, those themes in the show. They, they, you know, uh, I know seniors who are inspired and I love it when they do it wrong, but Hugh actually does it, I think pretty much verbatim, right? Hugh, Hugh basically reads the line back that, that he was fed from junior, but he says it in a way that almost makes you feel like it was his, his thought all along. And there you go. I, I love that about Hugh. He, he just owned it. Um, and again, to me, this is this whole, like, they thought they were fooling him. And then he gets the upper hand, and now he gets to turn the tables on them. 
And it's this really, I don't know, I just, I love all of the trickery going on in this episode, even though some of it's just as simple as a surprise party. It's, it's great. But Hugh tricking them is one of my favorite things. All the Trump lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> then Hugh gets the guest list. A Russ Figoli from Marin County, fancy, or whatever the fuck, is coming. Recently retired from the Foreign Service, so they're in New Jersey now, we learn. The Foreign Service, by the way, is essentially the hired staff, if you will, of the State Department that execute American foreign policy around the world. Their oldest daughter, Octavia, very northern name choice, if you will, lives in New Jersey too. From the looks of it, Carm isn't too fond of dear old Octavia. Dan, she better watch her step. <laughs> Especially with that with that five-page Christmas card letter. I, when I heard that, I was like, I hate these people already. By the way, on that five-page Christmas card, every household's got one. Do you have that special person in your life that sends you a holiday card that is the equivalent of a fucking dissertation? I do. I do. I, I can't bring myself to tell them stop <laughs> I, I love them but please stop it's too much do you have it? oh of course we have a neighbor actually there's a neighbor on our street that sends a annual holiday update card to every neighbor on our street and each member of the family and this is a family of five each member of the family writes a fucking bill of rights and it's like nobody cares but here's the sad thing is that my wife and i are are such bored people that we actually take turns reading it aloud in a mocking sort of <laughs> tenor it does exist and there are people like that and i love that the writing they, they put this in because it is super relatable yeah. kind of the point is this is an everyman show on multiple levels the regularness of life and this is a classic little nugget of that yeah yeah, I, I, the second she said that with Carmela, I already hated these people. So I was ready. I was I was born ready to hate them. <laughs> All you need to know about them, yeah. right? Carm's mother, the Fagoli kids, finished college. Mother Diggin and daughter, which we kind of have gotten hints and glimpses of earlier. I think even Meadow made a sort of like a dig at her. Like, what do you want me to do? Leave Columbia and go to Montclair State like you did, right? Mm -hmm. So this is something that we kind of tacitly know bothers Carmela. Uh, that's what sticks in your craw is a great little cliched piece of writing. Um, then she continues. He's someone, Mary says, we can all be proud of, Anthony, because he served in the State Department. Hugh bails us out, though, Dan. But when we were kids together in the Navy, he had such a bad case of the crabs, we used to call him the governor of Maryland. Hey, Hugh, stop acting like a child. Oh, lighten up. He's old enough to hear. That right there, Dan, actually, I gotta say, is what inspires me to do the sort of NBA off-the-cuff stuff and sort of the tennis off-the-cuff stuff. I learned it from the best show on Earth. So That's great. this was that. And, and, and AJ's reactions are freaking classic in this because he really doesn't care when she's trying to impress when, when mary's trying to impress him with all of these stats about uh dr fagoli um and they even say his name wrong right just to mess with them they like really emphasize the first syllable real hard to make it fagoli and you're like oh dude this is gonna be great 
And so he doesn't care at all. But the joke about the crabs, all of a sudden AJ perks up and I'm just like, that's classic AJ. And that's setting us up for this character we haven't even met yet. And it's just, uh, I love it. Freddie DeNovi, we learn, was on the guest list too. Tony will love him, Hugh says. They tell him then he's not coming. And Hugh, the line you used earlier, you put the screws to him. Hugh won't come if the man of the house isn't there. To which I thought, he really wants Freddie DeNovi to have a good time. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all about Freddie DeNovi, which I don't, do we ever really see Freddie DeNovi? I don't remember. So that's funny you mentioned that. I think he's the guy that said GI Bill. Okay. Okay. You know what I'm talking yes, about? Yes, they do. Yes. The camera cuts to him, and it's the guy that says one thing, and I can't confirm or deny it, but I think that I, if there's any, let's just, you know what? Pada Bing is going to call that motherfucker Freddie DeNovi. And he's going to have a great time, and Tony's going to love him. <laughs> cut to the man of the house, Tony driving. Smart cut. Angie calls to complain about Phil. Tony gets a lot of complaining phone calls. While he's driving. This is sort of another little subtle theme here. Mm -hmm. Tony says, you want to be a woman, emphasis on the word woman, in business, then do what you think the situation calls for. Dan, that's super loaded. Here's my thing. Doesn't he stand to gain by her shop being successful? Doesn't it line his pockets more? I think... I think, yes. I think Tony knows that ultimately this is small change stuff for him. This is like life and death for her sometimes because she's still building a business. And we, you know, we've seen her go from sort of like helpless without pussy to, you know, taking the reins. You know, she was at one point we've seen her working in a, in a grocery store. Right. Yeah. And now she's slowly getting like, like her business up. She's never known the wealth that Tony had. So for her, like, this is like, $2,000 on a seat or any of those other like repairs that they got to swallow. I mean, she's really hoping like, Hey, can you bail me out on this? Because I can't really just absorb that into my business. Tony knows that ultimately like he needs that front or he needs that whatever. And he'll probably help her out eventually, or at least smooth it over. He's just fucking with her. And this is the drinking game. He smirks in this one, like crazy too. He's just so happy to be screwing with her. It's the, it's the evil side of Tony that it really pops out on this one. Part of me also feels kind of like, I guess, that he feels like anyone can do that job. So she's dispensable. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he stands to gain. So I just put it on there. No, I think that's, yeah, that's a good point, too. She, I mean, he could dump her, right? I guess he could. Yeah. Yeah. He tells her it's her call and hangs up laughing, to your point. Taking out his frustration with pussy on her, perhaps. There's some of that going on. Cut to Tony B in bed. Um, note the Jesus tattooed on his chest. The imagery. I mentioned that because we see Jesus in the Fellini movie too. And a helicopter. <laughs> yes. There's a little bit of a stretch here, but there's also a third, though tenuous, connection to Jesus later when Tony and Carmela reunite. Mm -hmm. In the eyes of Father Intentola and the church, Dan, Jesus would be tap dancing in heaven over their reconciliation. <laughs> Tony calls, asks Tony B to be at the body shop when Phil picks up his car. Was that to muscle Phil? And was Tony B the right guy for that job, if so? 
It's a good question. I mean, I think um, he is looking for things for Tony B to do. And he does have to, I think he does have to show that he's doing something for Angie, right? Like that he's going to do something. So right now, Tony B is an easy one to just, he, he wants to do some work and Tony has an easy kind of non-job for him to do, you know? And then of course it's going to give us something really wonderful in a second, which we'll get to when they actually do meet um, Joey Peeps and Tony B. But um, yeah, I think it was just, just, I don't know. I guess it's just something to to give Tony B something to do and to placate Angie. You actually solved my problem. It, it goes right back to when Tony B was in the, in the back of the bing with him asking for more duties. This is Tony S throwing Tony B a bone, if yeah. you will. Thank you. Uh, I'm sorry, not Phil. When the Shah of <laughs> Iran picks up his car. Tony keeps the call going. This is another blast from the past. He says he's on his way to Welsh Farms for a triple blueberry Sunday. Dan, the kid in him keeps coming out around Tony B, right? He wants to talk to him uh, like they were kids once, unlike with any other person to date on this show, even Artie, right? Mm -hmm. What's your dessert? What dessert would you get in the car to drive to? And call somebody to brag about it. To tell them about it? Ugh. In the car, though. See, because, like, I'm not a, I'm not a big ice cream guy like he's talking about. I'm not even a big sweets guy. My stuff is always, like, like snack food, like pretzels and, Dor- like, Cool Ranch Doritos. But I don't think I would call someone up about it and be like, hey, these, these Doritos are slamming, man. <laughs> Spoken like a true marathon runner. Yeah. <laughs> I need that salt. I need to replenish. Cut to the restaurant, speaking of salt, place we've never seen before, fancy. It's the pool room at the Four Seasons in New York. Rusty and Angelo are lunching with Tony B. Rusty orders a bottle of Opus, fine choice, depending on the year and blend, that's a $500 plus bottle of wine. Dan, Lynn Tenenbaum over here. <laughs> oh, God, I love it. Angelo says they were like freaking frack in the can. A Swiss skating duo that's become synonymous with two peas in a pod, thickest thieves, and the like. Then Tony B does a Jackie Gleason impersonation, another nod to the Honeymooners. We're getting a lot of that this season, especially. And Rusty's kind of bored. Rusty's not impressed. Uh, Maybe perhaps doubting what he's about to offer Tony B. Tony B, this comes back to what we were talking about a moment ago. Tony B admits to Rusty that he could use a little cash injection. Now, why did he freely admit this to these guys, to outsiders, if you will, but not to Tony Soprano? Well, I think he sort of did in a way when he came in to the to the Bing looking for more work. You know, he's just trying to earn like everybody else. Now that he's in this, you know, like he gave up the whole. But Tony asks him right then, do you need cash? But he wants to earn it. He wants to okay. earn it. And I think the other thing, too, is every time Tony Soprano flaunts his position like he does in the car with i'm going to get ice cream and my problems are that i'm basically screwing phil leotardo and angie bumpincero at the same time um while i'm also interrupting your sex (laughs) he's 
Tony really picked the wrong time to call Tony B. Like it was like you ruin the mood. You complain about things that aren't real problems. Meanwhile, this guy's still living with his mom. And you're like, of course he's going to start. Like, I think he couldn't almost couldn't help himself, but kind of like let a little bit out. Like, Hey man, I, I need to earn, I need to earn money because I'm sick of, of living under Tony Soprano's shadow. Beautiful observation. So you see the straw that broke the camel's back as being that scene. I think, no, I think officially, cause he doesn't, he doesn't realize it's going to be a, 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 like a straight up murder. He's, he's, I just need work. Like if it's and like another airbag job. Right. Yeah. So that would have been fine with him, I think. But he, once he realizes what the job is, he's like, I don't know. I got it. I don't think Tony would like that. Tony Soprano, the break, this, the, the camel breaking is later. Okay, so we're, we're in sync on that. Yeah. He wants to move up the pyramid, though. He says that. And then we learn that they, Rusty and Angelo, want him to whack someone yeah. to avenge Lorraine's death. Little Carmine, nice little backstory, went to school with her. Rainy Caluso, Aww. right? Tony B says thanks, but no thanks. Doesn't want to complicate things with Tony yet. But it begs the question, why even take the meeting? And secondarily, if it hadn't been a hit job, does he take the job on the spot? I think yes. I think that's what I think that's what Tony B was hoping for because his buddy there, Angelo, brought him in thinking he was doing him a favor. He was he was vouching for him and he was basically saying, like, I know I personally know, hey, it's tough getting out of the can and finding work. Let me let me help you set up. Plus, they got a problem they gotta solve too. And they want to go outside to do it. So it, to, I bet you it was as innocent as these, you know, murderous mobsters can be of a of a proposition. They're like, well, let's just work. You want to do it or not? And of course, Tony B realizes it in his situation, knowing where he's at with Tony Soprano, that he can't do that right now. Like that would be a bad move. Cut to Carm practically begging Tony to come to the party. Do it for Hugh. <laughs> Tony plays hard to get. Again, flexing that power dynamic. Kind of like Phil Jackson when the Lakers tried to woo him back for those last two championships of the Kobe era. Dan, I did that one for you again as well. I appreciate that. Okay, cut to Hughes' cake. Knights of Columbus logo emblazoned over the top of it made me immediately think of Silvio. And why didn't he get the invite? You know... Speaking of Silvio, I love. I want to say one thing really quick, um, because partly because Tony's excuse was, "I got to go fishing with Silvio," which Netflix spinoff "Fishing with Sil." Oh, the last time we saw this happen was end of season one, where they uh, they shot that dude on the villain boat, pulling a gun out of a fish, and then went to bury his body. So, does fishing with Sil mean something? Is it? Is it like, I'm going to go kill somebody? Because he literally says, I'm going fishing with Syl. We've only seen that happen one other time and it didn't end well for somebody. Beautiful catch. <laughs> and it is like his equivalent of like oranges, the symbolism of oranges. Fishing with Syl. And the Godfather reference. I like that, Dan. Dude, you bring in the fire today. <laughs> I love it. I can't help it. I'm pandemic mode. <laughs> I'm feeling the heat from Chicago. And I'm one day away from the Michael Jordan documentary. I don't think I could ask for a better combination right now than Sopranos with you and uh, Michael Jordan tomorrow. This is special. Um, okay. Carms, 
panic prepping. No Artie, right? She's cooking all by herself. I feel like there was a message there as well, too. Usually, back in season one, she wanted Artie for this and she wanted Charmaine for that. Remember the little finger to Charmaine? Mm -hmm. But for some reason, she wants to be a martyr for this birthday. It was kind of interesting. Now, don't get me wrong. Artie's doing the hors d'oeuvres and the appetizers, but there's something particularly masochistic, if you will, about Carmela in the kitchen here. And she's trying to do that do you have any thoughts on what that is or why there's like a change? Oh, maybe I'll just throw this at you. Is it, is it her allowance? She can't afford it. No. I, well, I think she can afford I, I think their concept of money is always crazy to me. Like the, 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 the amount of money they have. And when they talk about tightening belts and pinching pennies, I'm like, get the hell out of here. I've seen you blow 20 grand on a horse. So like, to me, I, I see it as a couple things with Carmela, like manning the, the whole party. One is she wants to prove, I think, that she's an independent woman. Like she can do things on her own. She doesn't need um, uh, Tony or other people. But the other thing too is I think she's trying to keep herself occupied because I think this is a little tough for her. Um, but I don't think she realized what she got herself into. And the third thing that I, I read is like just good storytelling is that this sets her up for the whole rest of the party to be um, let down by almost everybody but Tony. Because everybody who comes in there either takes from her or they, um, they do their job in a half-assed or way, a way or a way that she didn't want them to do it. And Tony's really the only one who delivered exactly what she needed. Like he, he mans the grill, he presents this amazing gift to her father, like all these great things that Tony does. And that makes her see him in a different light than she's seen all season. It's actually an interesting thing to piggyback off your point. It separates Tony from the pack, yep. right? He delivered on every level, and that's sort of what brought them together. And ultimately, he gets what he wants at the end, right? Because yeah. she, was, you know, she, was, she wasn't necessarily playing hard to get. Let's talk about it when we get there. Yeah. Tony B comes early to help. Interesting. Does he have an agenda is the first thing that comes to mind. I remember watching it for the first few times. He says... He can make a dip run to Grand Union. Karma reminds him it closed while he was in the can. Um, I looked it up, and a few versions of the store actually existed in places like Vermont until about 2013. He offers to make her a cocktail, a rusty nail, which is drambuie and scotch, served in an old-fashioned glass, commonly served on ice. Drambuie, for those that may not know, comes from Gaelic, which is a drink that satisfies. And I learned this from The Sopranos. It's scotch, but with like herbs and spices. Have you ever had drambuie? No, I have not. Yeah, neither have I. But I, The Sopranos, again, I've said this before, is an education every time you watch it. And this is an example of that right here. He's making small talk, which is an interesting thing for me. I've never quite reconciled it. Maybe you can hold my hand through this. He's asking about the house how long they've been there, which is a fascinating question on multiple levels for people with the brain damage that we have, right? Five years now, he says. Is that an implication that they're new money? Is it a thinly veiled dig? I don't know. I mean, I think, I mean, Tony has 
correct me if I'm wrong. Tony Tony has been at the house before, right? This isn't the first time we've seen him at the house. He's been there before. He's never had a one-on-one with Karm about it. Right. Though. So I, I wonder about that question. I think part of what this, to me, my read on this is this, and I don't know if, if it is a digger. And I think you, you got a good point because I do think Tony B is coming in a little hot when he comes into this, this party, like he's it's a slow burn, but he starts to get annoyed regret like over the course of the party but i also looked at it as like he's again like he's seeing all the stuff that he might have had if he didn't go to jail that night and it's about that that haves and haves nots to me the coveting the idea that like this party is pretty pretty lavish i think like for a a 75th year old party at a at your own home they pull out a lot of stops and i think the whole time he's sort of sizing up what um what he's missing out on. Do you think he thinks he could have been the boss? I don't know if he would have been the boss. I mean, I know that there's, there's allusions to that, like throughout, and I don't know if we're there yet with, with that idea. I don't think we are about like, about fantasizing Tony Blundetto, what might've been. Um, But I do know, like, I think he knows, I think he thinks that he would have been in a much better position. Much better position for sure. Yeah, absolutely. He can't, he can't find his daughter right now. So like he's, He's a mess. Yeah. But to quote the show again, as we are wont to do, Dan, he has no idea what it takes to be number one. That's right. <laughs> I think I botched the quote a little bit, but Meadow and I'll correct it when we get there. Meadow and Finn show up. Meadow starts in on making a dessert. She's determined. Thought that was a little awkward. I don't really know what to make of that. Finn goes swimming. You have a thought on that? Oh, no, I know. It's, it's just another person pissing off Carmella. It's, she's coming in. Oh, okay. There you go. She, she's going to leave. A, she's going to come in. Carmella already has a cake, so that's that's basically throwing another cake on top of a cake. And it's like, you don't need that other cake. Second, you're, you're busting up my kitchen. She's got a whole workflow. I, I mean, I'm not that great in the kitchen, but when I am in the kitchen, like my stuff has got to be the way it is because I'm going to forget something or I'm going to get something out of place and my whole... My whole situation is going to be screwed. So Meadow's coming in, looking for some pot or pan, whatever, for that icebox maple walnut cake. Finn does the best, un, un, like like young douchey thing. He asks for a towel from her. Oh, it's the poor. <laughs> it cracks me up. The looks on Carmela's face in this whole scene kill me every time. But yeah, I think they brought her in because she's going to come in leave a like make the cake maybe we don't even know and then leave a colossal mess because they actually cut to it later the mess that she made it's ridiculous yeah so no i think that it's just a bust up carmella love it i'm totally with you you were describing yourself in the kitchen i'm the same way and to extend the french uh language to this analogy too we got trompe loyer there's in cooking there's mise en place right which is having all the ingredients lined up having all your different tools and utensils lined up and the counter completely spot clean whenever i'm cooking the kids are not allowed near it and the spouse is not allowed near it because it's the same idea of like i can't i can't work like this (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So Finn does eventually go swimming. We don't know if he ever got that towel. Hope sure hope he did. <laughs> Tony B and Meadow are inside talking about Kelly. And you see the cameras lingering on him, lingering on him. He's looking at her with longing eyes. And I think to your point, this resentment towards Tony is continuing to steep in hot water. Slow burn. Yeah, well, what's beautiful about the way they play that, too, is that 
metal intuits that she that he's thinking about Kelly. He doesn't yes. say I'm thinking about Kelly. She goes uh, something to the effect of like still haven't been able to find Kelly or something like that or any any word on her or something like that. And then he goes down memory lane with her, you know, trying to trying to piece together when she was at the house and um, was she good in school? And like he's definitely um, seeing in Meadow again what could have been for him and his own daughter. We get this motif with Tony B in the very beginning when we're introduced to him, right? What his whole deal could have been before we even meet him in the show. He's he's on TV and Tony and Bobby and Janice are watching him and she's calling him a fox, you know, from back in the day. And it's always been about what could have been. I feel like there's a Pearl Jam song that kind of alludes to that sort of what could have been theme. Elderly woman behind the counter in a small town. Yeah. Then Carm's mom honks incessantly for help. I noted this because I've been there. Uh, Dan, that's how my mom arrives places too. She presses the horn and everybody's got to run out to help her bring stuff inside. So that was a nice regularness of life touch for me. Hugh then hand waves her off. He's too good. He truly makes this episode satisfy on every level. Tony B bolts. Hey, we don't get this clear-cut answer, but nice Cadillac convertible. Did he get that from Feech? Good question, because it's a it's a pretty nice car, right? Like, yeah, I'm like certainly not somebody who would want to have more than airbag jobs, if you will. Yeah, right? yeah. maybe Feech. That was his uh, parting gift before he hopped on that bus to back to the the prison. That's the only thing I could think of, uh, but. He's got it. So let's just call it Feech's Cadillac from a few episodes back with uh, the La Mana landscaping debacle. Let's do it. Carmela's parents. What was that? Was that a vacuum that they pull out of the trunk? Can you say it was some sort of like pool vacuum or wet vacuum or something? Some of the water. Wet I forget, but it was, yeah, it was definitely like, I mean, she doesn't need this right now. It's too late. You know, like whatever he's bringing He's too early and too late with it at the same time. Like, they, But they, to your point now, it's an irritation or getting in the way of Carmela's ultimate agenda here. Exactly. And Tony B just did it to her too. He, he basically pawned his kids off on her to go leave and take care of business and come back. So like, it's sort of, I, I wonder if Tony B all along was going to just dump these kids off on her and get, then go do the airbag thing for Tony Soprano. Dan, you're single-handedly dribbling through the defense here. Uh, you don't need any. You don't need anybody to set screens for you. You don't need any help, defenders. You're just dribbling right to the basket, and it's a thing of beauty. The thing that I noted here for this vacuum is another little, super simple regularness of life detail: parents returning vacuums and vice versa. Mm-hmm. But I wondered if there was some more symbolism, and you gave it to me. So thanks. Cut to Tony B walking into the body shop. Ironic moment here. He shakes Joey Peep's hand. Okay? Love it. Again, we've said this before on the podcast. When the camera spends a relatively inordinate amount of time on a character, Mm -hmm. uh, something bad is looming. And in this case, it's starting to be a little bit of the Joey Peep's episode, if you will. Okay, we've seen Joey Peeps a lot more than we have in episodes past. Phil's not sitting at 12 o'clock. 
I wondered if there was a time reference there for the 12 o'clock. I couldn't find anything that satisfied me. If you did, let me know. I got nothing. Tony B wants to try. Phil doesn't give a fuck. I thought that was an incredible <laughs> Phil Leotardo line. He can sit in it until St. Gennaro, which of course is the festival in September based on the liturgical calendar of the Roman Catholic Church, which basically means you can sit in it for the next five, six months if you want. Tony B says it's fine, but Phil insists, and I'll play the soundbite. Seems okay. How could it be okay if it's a skew? which has been the subject of many a meme and many a joke <laughs> since time immemorial. I love Joey it. Peeps rolls his eyes, and then we get another great Phil soundbite. What's the matter, Joey? You got a fucking eye problem? You look like Stevie Wonder, your eyes rolling around. Oh, what'd I say? I didn't say nothing, Phil. To which my response has always been, Oh! I feel like Stevie's untouchable, Dan. Yeah, and, and, to his, and Stevie's always wearing the glasses anyway. How would he even know that? <laughs> Good point. But it's hilarious anyway. Interestingly, like Stephen Van Zant, Stevie Wonder was also known as Little Stevie. Mm -hmm. Interesting little parallel between yeah. the two musicians. Angie's livid. Uh, she doesn't want to pay $2,000 for a factory seat, which as I told you before, I can totally relate to customers trying to hose a dealership. Usually dealerships hose the customer, but uh, in defense of the dealership, sometimes they get hosed also, depending on how many Phil Leotardos happen to walk in on any given day. Back over at Hugh's party, Carm's mom is freaking out about Figoli's allergies. Can you be Italian? and not like tomatoes? It's, well, it's not that he doesn't like them, right? It's that he had some sort of like, uh, uh, was it, um, oh, radiation for his prostate. I just looked at, I, I have a little note here. He has radiation for his prostate and it changed his uh, ability to process tomatoes. Pomodoris. Yeah, yeah. Who says Pomodori? Oh, Father Intintola. Yeah, yeah. Father Intintola is expressing grief to Figoli over his tomato allergy. Yeah, yeah. Artie to the rescue, which I thought was a great little Artie moment. Yep. They do have a non-tomato appetizer. It's prosciutto-wrapped chevre, which is goat cheese. Sounds awful, but if you don't have tomatoes, there you go, right? And, and Mary goes running as fast as she can after them to get them for Dr. Fickle. She like, she like bolts out of the room the fastest I've ever seen like a senior citizen move. And she then immediately complains about Livia and her husband to the Fagolis, this line about skeeved the butter. What does that mean to you? I don't know what that means. I was wondering, I was actually wondering if you knew because I wrote that, I wrote that down. I was like, what is skeeving the butter? And um, is it that she did something different when she cooked the butter? Or is it that she, is it a term meaning that she dislikes butter? I don't think that would be true. I would take the latter that she disparaged the butter because I looked I looked it up too, but I couldn't find a satisfactory answer. There's a listener that knows, DM me. But it, it it's insulting the butter right. is what I took it to mean. Yeah. The whole Soprano bunch detested Northern cooking. This bothered me and it bothered everybody. It bothers a lot of people. She's trying to distance herself from the people and place of which not only is she part of the family, but she's also a guest in this home. Talk about getting thrown under the bus by your own mother. 
it's yeah we're not unfamiliar with that subject in the show right i mean <laughs> at least she's not trying to whack them <laughs> but, but livia-esque right is kind is. of my point you're right you're absolutely right and it's it's uh throughout the entire time she's always trying to like at the expense of the sopranos impress or explain away to dr figoli like what's going on and like the whole time hugh like, right after that he's like I ate up and down the whole boot for two weeks. It was great. He's just trying to change the subject. He's like, I, I, this is how I deal with my wife after being married to her for this amount of years. I don't even engage right now with this. I just try to like deflect or go somewhere else. And, uh, it's, uh, I really dislike Mary in this episode, but she's so good at doing it. Like the actress who does it, she's so great at it. Exceptional. Uh, Hugh, to your point, adds a second wave of comic relief, right? First at the dinner table with Carmela about the governor of Maryland. And here he's providing levity and just it's such a nice balance to this episode. So last thing about Mary is that there's a tremendous amount of hypocrisy on display here, right? In the same breath, she is distancing herself from the Sopranos and the Soprano family, but she is also invoking the ghost of Livia. She is in one moment being this elitist, but at the same time also being the very woman who she detested and despised as evidenced by their, uh, the, the eulogy of her. So again, savvy, sophisticated, subtle writing, but also if you watch the show deeply, you get satisfied and it's checking off so many boxes on so many different levels here. Livia is a member of this party. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a great observation because they, I mean, they hinted at Livia before at the house, but now this is full on talking about Livia and, and like you just said, that's, that's perfect. Like she, she does channel a lot of what Livia would do. You could picture those words coming out of her mouth as Livia-isms with no problem. The only thing she didn't do right was the Livia hand gesture. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Tony B comes back this time with a video camera. That was probably his biggest mistake, right? And probably, uh, if not for that video camera, there would not be what takes place after later on this episode. Tony Soprano comes too with charcoal and Palumbo's, Hugh's favorite. I'm guessing that's a now defunct Italian market in Newark. Uh, I couldn't find anything else specific to Palumbo and Hugh. If anybody knows, please also let me know. Carmela explains about him being late and Tony drops a Honeymooners reference again. Tony goes out back... Hugh's thrilled. Mary, not so much. Tony thinks that this guy, whatever the fuck's name is, Fogoli, thinks he's a doc doc. But unfortunately, he tells us his doctorate is in international affairs. To which Mary thinks she needs to chime in to prop him up, right? We talked about propping up last episode. Mm -hmm. From Princeton, she says. And then Tony... This is my question for you. Tony says, like Kissinger, you're a doctor like Kissinger, who's, of course, the Secretary of State once and a prominent American public figure. Was that a dig? I did not think so. I thought that was innocuous. I thought so, too. I I think at this point, Tony's not walking in giving a shit about Dr. Fagoli, but that's not to be offensive to him either. Like Tony's goal here, I think, at, at the party is to be a good person, like not even just to, you know, get with Carmela or anything, but to show everybody he's a good guy. Tony loves showing people he's a good guy. 
So like initially when he sees uh, Dr. Fagola, he's just making conversation with him. And I think in a way, I, I was wondering if he was trying to compliment him in a way. Because, me too. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. He compared him to Henry Kissinger. Right. I mean, that's that. I wouldn't take that as a dig. And I think the, the guy is just already prepared to not like Tony. Like he's been, he, he probably knows about Tony and, you know, and I'm sure that for whatever we've seen with what Mary's saying here, she said so much more, uh, you know, outside of this episode that we'll never know. But like you could, the look on that dude's face when he sees Tony is cold as ice. So like Tony will realize this, but not right now. Yeah. Right now he's being affable. And to our point, the onslaught of Figoli is totally undeserved in this episode. Mm -hmm. Also note that Tony Carmela, sorry, calls Tony B TB which is an eloquent little way to even more deeply immerse us into this backyard family gathering, right? Yeah, yeah. It's also, I mean, it's a little belittling too. Like it's, there's a little bit of, she just, it's, it's the, going it's back. This. To, it's this. It's that hand gesture uh, uh, that he, uh, she did back, way back in what, to Charmaine uh, a long time ago. It's. I was just going to say, I think you just said that Tony B is the Charmaine Buko of this episode. Yeah. <laughs> yes, except without the violence, yeah. <laughs> so Tony mans the grill and everything looks perfect. Autopsy provides a nice reminder that this grill has been a series mainstay, if you will, going all the way back to the pilot. And then early this season, where we see it unused and abandoned, to now vital and thriving could very well be a signifier of Tony's return to Casa Soprano. Beautiful little observation. Uh, Carmela gives a speech. Then Hugo, another beautiful moment between them. We, as viewers of the show, five seasons in, it's sort of a nice payoff for us too. We get to see a nice family, earthy, homey, non-agenda moment and it's sort of like a feel-good thing where even after watching it i can remember like the original viewings like it's an opportunity to pause sort of like you know flex your shoulders a little bit maybe go refresh your drink and then come back it's one of the few moments in the sopranos where it's like ah like an intermezzo if you will to invoke fellini and his intermissions and his movies i love the moments that the show doesn't do it often but where they bring a, a large part or all of the ensemble together. I mean, they don't bring everybody in this because you don't get Tony's mob family so much, except for uh, Christopher. Except for Christopher. And I want to point out, like Christopher, who again wrote the episode. I think this is one of the few episodes that Michael Imperioli wrote that, like, he I think only has one line in the whole thing, and it's it's goddamn it. <laughs> but like, it's I love seeing like some of your favorite characters not in an important role like they're just their background like tone uh, yeah adriana and christopher with sunglasses on for some reason you gotta wonder what's going on there but they never allude to it um, well we know we well we know it's probably yeah he's probably using but you know it's like it's just it's a wonderful little easter egg but that i love i love when they do that they only do it usually like once a season maybe but it when it happens it's a it's refreshing it's really refreshing refreshing it's a beautiful yeah. word cousin brian's there of course too just hanging out yeah, just chilling hopefully he brought back the dewalt is he, what i need that drill <laughs> so then there's presence right and tony goes first he believes 
his present is the undisputed best, which is a great contrast to what's to come. Uh, Finn, of course, thinks it's a Stratocaster guitar, but nope. It's a Beretta. Beretta. <laughs> a shotgun. The Northerners note in the back are bristling at this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a Jubileo 12 gauge, which means Jubilee in Italian. Thanks to Mr. International Affairs Insight, they are in fact, Beretta that is, the oldest manufacturer of firearm components in the world. Interestingly, it's also a northern Italian company, which might explain Doc, whatever the fuck's adulation of them. That goalie. (laughs) Uh, Cut to Tony B. Nice to have money to speak about your have and have nots thought theme. Give me another rolling rock, which again, if you are a man or a person of a certain means, you're going to opt for something besides a rolling rock. Nice little real life observation there too. What time do you start drinking today? Probably right after you got up. Oh, cuz. Implication, Tony B. and Chris's mom are first cousins, which makes sense because Tony Soprano is also cousins with her per Adriana, we learn when she's talking to San Severino. Mm -hmm. So we're getting a little family tree mapping happening over here. He gets up on Carmela's request Mr. Charmaine over here to make some family videos. And he points it in imperfect places, to say the least. Tony's belly and Carmela's ass. Did you make anything of that moment? Well, yeah, there's a couple things I think are funny about this or even just telling. So the telling thing to me is that now he's he's really getting annoyed. Like he's we're watching Tony B slowly build to his like conclusion at the episode. Like it, it all this stuff kind of matters to his mental state. But what I think is really funny about having him of all the chores they picked for Tony B um, to man the camera. Um, I think it's like a nod to the, the fans in a way, because we know that the actual actor has directed some of the best episodes of the whole series. So like, for him to be on camera duty and then doing a really shitty job of it on purpose. I think it's, there's some sort of like, there's like a playful humor in that, that I think is awesome. And, uh, um, but again, it's one more thing to like build this general sense of resentment towards uh, the soprano life that he, he wants to kind of covet. Party goes into the night, full moon. So you go from Carmela's ass to a full, full moon. moon. Yeah, it's great. Nice touch. <laughs> yep, Exactly. Tony overhears Doc whatever the fuck talking about the Beretta Museum in Brescia. Of course, that's way up in the north of Italy. The best pieces, he explains, they never export. Oh, doctorate dis. Doctorate dick right there. <laughs> that guy's a jerk. Ugh. That's when Tony full on realizes, I think. I think that's Yeah, for oh, he he full on realizes, but a lot of class, Dan, or was that tit for tat? Was that him getting Tony back for diminishing his doctorhood? Is he that petty? Is he capable of being that petty? I don't think that's it. I really think in this case, I think Tony came in genuinely trying to be good guy Tony. And when he was initially talking to him, I don't even think he realized at first that anything would have been a slight. And so this moment here in front of everybody, by the way, there's so yes, that's the worst part in front of everybody. Cause they all like, they, they deliberately, the camera makes a point to cut to people's reactions and you see like everyone go like, Ooh, and like Artie's like, Ee. 
and even uh, Carmela, I had to rewatch it because I'm like, did she overhear it or not? Because she she will mention it later, and she is she creeps into it and has and witnesses it, which then leads into the next scene. So she heard it too. Okay, so Carm by the grill is thankful to Tony for making Hughes' year. Uh, you start to get the sense that things might be warming up between them and that the fact that they're right by the fire, I always think of the doors, come on baby, light my fire, I can't help myself. Uh, the music that we hear in the show, though, is reminiscent of the opening of Godfather 2, which I thought was a nice nod if it was intentional. Tony tells TB that Hugh built their house. There's some news, and to extend your mention from earlier, this also is an interesting reality TV spinoff. Yes. Hugo's Houses, <laughs> season one, The Soprano Residence. Mm-hmm. I love it. How many times will Hugh fall off the roof in this episode? Tune in and find out. Tune in and find out. Thank you for the logline there. <laughs> Hugh's shit-faced... Again, he made this episode in so many ways. He gave us that delivery and that performance. As he mostly makes every scene he's in throughout the entire series. I got to say, I can't say it enough. Love me some Hugh. And he's a guy that I really would have loved to talk to. Sadly, I can't do that. Yeah. Uh, they get him into the car. Great moment when Carm hands Tony the shotgun. Uh, again, another nod to the pilot, right? With her going in for the AK-47. Uh, subtle reference to a James Cagney movie is made, too. Hugh says it. All of it is so subtle, Dan. So careful. And with every rewatched, the power of that subtlety becomes more and more apparent and enjoyable and awe-inducing. Mary apologizes to the Northerners. And Carm doesn't understand why. This is a great moment between them. I'll play some of it. He's such a diplomat. He insults his host. You heard what he said to Tony. He's a pompous man. He always was. Let's talk about this another time. That's why you didn't want Tony here. It had nothing to do with the marital situation. Like with many Carmela-isms, Dan, couldn't get more accurate than that. Oh, she, right? Yeah. Oh, she's she's on fire in her conversation with, with Mary. It is... I love seeing Carmela finally unleashed because it's always a thing of beauty. A, because you got Edie Falco doing it, but they give her such great lines because they set her up to be someone who's keeping it, trying to keep it bottled up and together and ignoring. And then all of a sudden she's just like, what the fuck are you crying about? Your secret is out. You're like, yes. The best stuff, true to life, right? The best stuff comes from people that keep it close to the vest. Mm -hmm. When they say something, it actually matters. Mm -hmm. It actually carries a weight. It's like charcoal being condensed into a diamond in in them. And then all of a sudden it just comes out and that's Carmela. It's great. Beautiful analogy. Uh, It's a wonderful substitute for what could have been a beautiful NBA analogy. Ah, shoot. (laughs) (laughs) Arthur Avenue. Well, hey, look, 98 Bulls. They were being chiseled and chiseled and chiseled. And what what does a diamond start off as? It starts off as this rough piece of lump of coal, right? And that was Michael Jordan. The beautiful thing about Michael Jordan, I got to say this, is that most people don't know this about him, but part of his energy, part of his mastery of the game came from stuff from childhood where his dad thought more highly of his older brother. Mm -hmm. Everything about Michael Jordan, and I learned this from Kobe Bryant, by the way, part of Michael Jordan was this always wanting to be the best in his dad's eyes. And 
Kobe Bryant said the secret to getting at Michael Jordan is what he called psychological warfare. If you knew that about him, you knew that there was a one-upsmanship that you could get at. So he was, to your point, to finish this thought, he was, he started off as a lump of charcoal that became a diamond. You did it. You threaded the needle. You, you found a way. I love it. Way to go. Uh, Arthur Avenue, he mentions, she mentions. They were both raised on Arthur Avenue, which if you look it up on a map, isn't too far away from where the rest of these guys grew up, which to me was an implication that they likely had a household full of Gavones too, right? That's overeaters for the uninitiated. Um, I don't know about you. Well, actually, I know about you because you're a runner and you're committed to it. But I've been overeating. I've been a fucking Gavone in my own house during this quarantine, man. Oh, just because I'm running doesn't mean I'm not eating. I mean, what else you got to do? It's, it's delicious. It's, what are we going to get out of here? Mary's comment about Meadow being dark when she was born to me, was another super relatable grandmotherly comment, especially coming from any kind of first or second generation immigrant experience. I've been on the receiving end of that line. Uh, so it was interesting that she said it and wa- being able to watch it through dad glasses now. It's all about assimilation for Mary, no matter the cost is the point. It's about the optics. She wants to look, she wants to look like the, the proper thing and Tony's not bad to her. Back in the back, the gang's playing Marco Polo, which again, a great regularness of life, relatable to all, all American backyard activity, and a great contrast, right? While the family is playing that here, a guy is about to get revenge killed someplace else. I think you had a point on this too. Oh, this is where I'm going to, I'm going to toss something at you about my whole fool the eye thing. So we're literally now playing a game. This is the show saying we're going to play a game where everyone has to close their eyes and engage their surroundings, not knowing what the hell's going on. And I love that. There's gotta be some sort of like, like uh, connection to that for me because Again, I feel like there's so many people who are have been fooled or are fooling other people. And what better game to do that in than Marco Polo for this episode? Beautiful. Love it. Before we leave this scene, AJ and Tony sneak up on Carmela and throw her in. Dan, have you ever been the victim of that or done it to someone else? I've definitely done it to someone else. <laughs> I think my wife could attest to that. <laughs> but I've never, I don't think I've ever done it. Or if I do, if it would have happened to me, it would have been when I was like a kid or something. But I just love seeing Tony and AJ do anything together that's happy because it rarely happens. Like it's just, it's just good point. A, a father and son moment that is like ra- kind of rare for the show. And it almost feels, and I know the show is heavily scripted, so I, I I highly doubt this was improv, but it just feels so natural when they do it. Like, she did not know she was going to get tossed in the pool, and these two were like, we got a, a cool little thing we're going to do together. It's just, it's great. Unlike Richie, Dan, these three fucking sold it. Yep. <laughs> Brilliant. Cut to Tony B putting his boys down. He learns they took a book of pins from AJ and communicate that they love everything about his life, which is tough for any dad to hear. And that's Tony B's last straw for me. Yep. Are you still holding on to your last straw or do you agree? No, that's officially it. But, um, I mean, you know, we, we did 
there was one prior that really I feel I'd like to just quickly address, which is Tony B watching Meadow and Tony Soprano be father and daughter. He got to watch that whole thing play out. And what's funny is it's almost unintelligible. Like when Tony Soprano and Meadow are like, Hey, do you remember what I called you when you were a little girl? And she's like, Oh, stop it. Or whatever. It's like, it's almost like that fades off in the distance. And we see like the, the long stare of Tony B looking at that and just, again, wanting to covet what he could have had. Then we get to this scene. And yes, I, I totally agree with you that this is officially where uh, he's had it. But what's funny to me, again, this is everyone in the room basically is lying to each other. Um, he, Obfuscation. He's lying to his sons about his service in the, what is it, where did he go? Uh, he was Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia. He was stationed in Saudi Arabia, and that's his fooling of them. And they were trying to convince him that um, that they didn't steal the pins. Um, and then, of course, the the have and have nots is that that line that Jason says, I love where he lives. I don't want to come back here. That to me is like the tagline for the whole episode. Like, I love where he lives. I don't want to come back here. It's, it's brilliant that they had this this character who's so, I mean, arguably inconsequential in the show deliver such a powerful line. It's great. Oh, that's such a great observation. Saudi Arabia, that lie, if you will, would not hold up in our current world, right, Dan? Fucking internet? Yeah, these kids could have Googled their dad, but like, no. Uh, by the way, how did you make us? I heard that there's something about smuggling semen. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't have flown. It wouldn't have flown at all. Artie's passed out poolside. He didn't say a goddamn thing, but that's all you need from Artie right there is a beautiful Artie moment. Tony and Carm are in the pool alone. They're talking about AJ. A note on the sound design again. The nighttime poolside vibe. They capture that in a bottle. It's a great immersive experience for an ordinary moment. Just great attention to detail. And then the choice to go underwater. I thought that was a brilliant way to, again, connect us to the moment. Yeah, it was under. It was literally under the surface for these two characters. Like there, it's like a, it's a visual metaphor for what's going on between the two, and they just play it so brilliantly. The way they took us, we're literally the one stage setting we have is a backyard. We're in a backyard, but they gave us all these angles. They gave us all these corners. They gave us all these conversations. They gave us all these moments between individuals, and it, literally, this episode, if you think about it, was a stage play. Yeah. And one of the biggest set pieces of the whole show has been the Soprano pool. And so they decided we're going to put the, a huge moment in that Soprano pool. The pool in this, in many ways, has been a character in the show. Yeah. And this was one of the episodes in which it was, for Absolutely, sure. Yeah. Cut to the next morning. Artie's still there, which was a nice, again, extending the nice Artie touch. Mm -hmm. uh, he slept outside through the night. I got to give him a lot of credit. I would have frozen to death. I got to give him a lot of credit for not getting attacked by a bear. <laughs> they had a bear back there and that never happened it, with, a, with a bunch of food out. I thought that was like, I kept waiting for the bear. Good point. Yeah. Whose dog is barking in the yard? Was that a ghost of Tippy over here? Is it Kusumano's dog? Is it? I don't know. That's I Because I, the dog barking is great, but it, it happens a lot in this that scene and in the room, in Tony's room. 
It had to be the neighbor because they don't obviously have a dog. I thought for a moment maybe somebody brought a dog. But then the only thing, because it's fresh in my mind, was that it was a nod to we got the ghost of Livia and now you're going to get the ghost of Tippy. <laughs> yeah. He went Just putting that on the farm. table. It's a, the farm is very close to the Sopranos house. <laughs> he could have easily run over to celebrate Hugh's 75th, right? <laughs> exactly. Cut to Tony B stirring Tang and contemplating, Dan, the orange symbolizing death somebody else's and maybe his own right we don't know yet Mm -hmm. and it's a poor man's drink tang is i remember drinking tang when i was a kid and that was like a substitute for actual juice (laughs) ah interesting haves and have nots right tony soprano's got the gets to pick what kind of pulp he wants in his orange juice (laughs) whereas this guy's stirring Powder. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. He tells Rusty he's in. And I'm quite proud of this one. Rusty nail in the coffin, if you will. Love it. I was, oh God, I'm so glad you said it. Cause when, when we, when we, you talked about the rusty nail drink earlier, I was like, is Vic going to go for it? Is Vic going to do the rusty to rusty? And I was like, then it didn't happen then. And now here we are. Day made right there. Rusty nail. I'm with you. A million percent. (laughs) Cut to Joey Peeps wrapping things up. Walking out of a brothel. Note inside the brothel, we see a Picasso print on the wall, which as you know, nothing makes me happier. It distracted me for a whole six minutes when I was like, wait a minute. They're giving us a fucking Picasso In this moment, to me, I cannot help but believe that it is David Chase bragging, not in an arrogant way, but like, look, I am providing you, viewer, with art on a Picasso-level proportion. The note I have here is that we're getting art, Dan, amidst the horror at every turn. Yeah. Bad and Ruin, like you mentioned, by Faces, sung by Rod Stewart from their 1971 album, I believe. Mm -hmm. Long Player. The song plays earlier at the Bing, like you mentioned. It's a perfect bookend for this episode and these moments for Tony Blundetto. Location-wise, this actual shooting happens around 93rd and 2nd Avenue in Manhattan. So Tony puts several caps in Joey Peeps and an innocent woman who he pulled out of the brothel. Symmetry for the Lorraine Coluzzo killing, perhaps, that another woman is killed as well. But Dan, my problem, too many bullets. Could the foot injury have been avoided if he fired two rounds and just walked away? And a bigger overarching question, would his story be any different? Ooh, good question. So he fires a total of four rounds, right? And I, I have to believe he was going for a headshot for Joey Peeps, right? Which he doesn't get on the first go. So he's got to get three at least because she can't come out of this either. But four, maybe that was one too far. Maybe you're right because, yeah, if had he not gotten run over, and I don't want to give away what's going to happen next at all. I don't want to, no spoilers, but it certainly is now a telltale clue on him 
that he was mixed up in this. I mean, even if if you leave this episode and you've never seen the stuff that comes after, it's like him limping away. He's going to have to explain that away now. He didn't get out clean. Right. If he's if there's a witness, a witness is going to observe a guy limping away from the scene of the crime. Yes, exactly. And and um, I got it. I don't know. I mean, I personally, I feel I have opinions about Tony Blundetto's character in general. And some of them are obviously informed by how the season plays out. So I won't, I won't go too far into that. But I will say um, he shouldn't have done this in general. Like, it, he should have waited a little longer. He could, have, he could have had other opportunities come by. He was pushed through this whole gamut of this episode of getting to watch the wealth that he doesn't have play out in full, full display. And he made a bum call. Like he, and, and for somebody who's supposed to be that smart too, he just got, he let his emotions get carried away with them, just like he did back at the, um, the, uh, uh, the massage parlor um, that they were setting up. There's this streak in him and it's just, it's, it's actually in the, the glass. One of my favorite shots of this whole, this whole show and the, and the whole series is Tony Blundetto walking to that car because it, it cuts from the cigar smoking guy out in the inside the, the whorehouse and they had a nice, rich, fancy cigar. And then you see him throwing a, a butt of a cheap cigarette on the ground, stomping it with his fancy shoes from when he won the money. And it's this whole interplay of what he could have and what he doesn't have. And then they just the way they bring him over like a predator to these guys and see his reflection in the glass. That's the look on his face is you got to If you it's a freeze frameable. I, I, I always look at that. I'm like, that is a psycho uh, uh, Tony Blundetto. And it's brilliant. It's like when he officially flips. It's super menacing. It when is. You see him in the glass like that. Dan, I got to do this. He made a rash decision to your point. Yeah. Okay. He could have called a timeout mm-hmm. and had the coach draw up a play. But instead, he just took an ill-advised shot. Yeah. Pun intended. Yeah. Okay. I'm with you. I can I can understand all of that. <laughs> the ramifications of which will potentially have his team lose in the playoffs. Yeah. And and that I love what you said. He made a bad decision, but it was it was a very human decision, right? Sometimes when the pressure's on you and if you're having a bad day, for example, and one thing begets another and it just the, the weight of the world falls down on you, you need to feel like you can have a win. You need to end that day with a win sometimes. And sometimes, very often, uh, very frequently, actually, it ends up being something you do stupidly. You either write a bad email or you write, you say the wrong thing to somebody and there ends up having ramifications. In this particular instance, somebody died and it's going to set off potentially a big, complicated, convoluted dynamic between New Jersey and New York. But something so simple, a simple human decision that you observed so well will end up having the gravest of consequences. Final thoughts, my friend, on this episode before we part ways and get back to our respective prisons. <laughs> well, um, we did, uh, you, I mean, man, you walked it through so well. I have one thing that I didn't touch upon that I wanted to mention has nothing to do with what actually happens in the episode. 
But what I always wanted to see happen in this episode is that somehow, for whatever reason, Patsy Parisi would get invited to the party so that he could sit there knowing that he pissed in that pool and that they're all swimming in it. And he'd just have a cigar or something just going, that's that's my revenge right there. <laughs> Other than that, man, we covered. How about you? I mean, did, you, did we miss anything? I cannot possibly top what you just said. <laughs> that is a genius level. Again, the show is perfect. The show is perfect. That would have been a genius level insert to have the episode go out with him taking a drag, knowing that all those motherfuckers <laughs> were swimming in a pool that he pissed in. That's it. Love it. Love it. Dan, Thank you so much for doing this with me. I had a blast. I hope you had a fraction of the blast oh, that I had. Oh, my God. This is, the, this is the highlight of my day, man. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate it so much. means a lot to me. Uh, also, your artwork has made my day and week and year in so many ways, so thank you. Where can listeners find out about you and your work? Oh, yeah. If you um, if you go on Instagram, where I see you all the time, um, just look up at Beardo Comics. We're already friends. So, I mean, it's, it, I'm pretty easy to find, but yeah, I, I, I'm on there. Um, I, a lot of my comics are under the, the, the handle at Beardo comics or beardocomics.com. So if you search any of those on anything, you should be able to find me. Dan is an incredible artist and a proud to call him a friend. Thank you, Dan. Stay well and be well, buddy. Thank you, Vic. Arts and